Welcome to the Renovatio podcast. Renovatio is the journal of Zaytuna College. I'm Sarah Barnett, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Scott Kreider, who is currently a professor of English at the University of Dallas. An award-winning teacher, Dr. Kreider has run both the University of Dallas's writing program and its seven arts of language program. His areas of specialization are Shakespeare and rhetorical studies, and his other academic interests include the history and character of liberal education and the English language Bible as literature. He's written multiple books on writing, rhetoric, and literature, including The Office of Assertion and Art of Rhetoric for the Academic Essay and The Art of Persuasion, Aristotle's Rhetoric for Everybody. Scott, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Today we wanted to introduce our listeners to thinking about rhetoric in the context of writing as a life skill. So whether you are a former student or you've never been a student or you only have a high school diploma, what, what do we mean when we say writing is a life skill? And just to set us off a little bit on this, I looked up life skills in the definition. So if we're talking about rhetoric, let's start with a good definition. And I found one that I liked quite a lot. It's from the World Health Organization from the late 90s. They define life skills as psychosocial skills. And they separate them into five basic areas. So the life skills are decision-making and problem-solving, creative and critical thinking, communication and interpersonal skills, self-awareness and empathy, and coping with emotions and coping with stress. Now, I, as a writer, just think to myself, well, writing can help with all of those things. But I want to try to convey that to our listeners today, step-by-step, especially thinking through this lens of rhetoric. So that leads to my question, how would you say that rhetoric benefits everyone, not just academics? How is that potentially a life skill for us as writers? It's a wonderful question, and I could see taking it up in in one of two ways guided by Plato. One possibility would be to discuss the private avenue and the other, the public Maybe we could move from one to the to the other. I found that your essay for the, the journal, Conversing with Oneself, really quite, quite compelling. And one of the reasons I did is that I, I felt like it was a challenge to the conception that I had a good challenge, a Socratic challenge for me to refine my own conception and try to deepen it. And I really enjoyed your, your explanation of this writing space of the diary or the journal, which we tend to think of as not rhetorical at all, because one is one's own audience, you know, leaving aside the fact that the journals that you explore all became public documents that others would read. But I think you make a good uh, make a good case that uh, without publication, or even prior to publication, there's this fundamental life skill that one can acquire through keeping a diary or or a journal. I found it a really interesting idea, not only because I've had students keep uh, journals, especially during our our travel abroad program in Rome. I encourage uh, and work with them on keeping a a Rome journal so that they can chart their, their reflections and their feelings and their experiences during, during the semester, but also because I thought to myself, well, if you're writing for yourself, is that a rhetorical, is that a rhetorical enterprise? And it, it helped me come to an idea I wouldn't have without putting your, your piece in mind into conversation. And that is that I was thinking that the best retour I think treats an audience 
as though that audience were uh, oneself, that, uh, that you speak to another the way that you would want to be spoken to or written to. And then I got thinking, well, perhaps the, not contrary, but perhaps the counterpart to that is the kind of personal writing that, that, you, that you discuss, in which one treats oneself as another and can actually write and in first defamiliarizing oneself from one's own experiences and reflections by making it external to oneself in the way that you in the way that you talk about it through this extraordinary technology in the best sense of that word and, and art through this technology of language and that this becomes in your conception a contemplative a contemplative experience the first life skill that i would recommend i owe i owe to you and that is to say you know here here for keeping a journal for all the reasons that you mention in your uh, in your piece what the study of rhetoric does to assist it i think is to is to is to allow one or to teach one really how how language itself is the way that we we speak not only to one another but to our but to ourselves like Whitman we contain multitudes and it seems to me that talking to ourselves through writing is one way I think to employ rhetoric in one of its highest in one of its highest forms I was really struck by Anne Frank's conception of her diary as a friend I thought really quite extraordinary and I couldn't I couldn't tell if the diary was a way for her to become her own friend which I th- I think is a really really intriguing a really intriguing idea first the making different or making other and then and then bringing bringing back into the same though now transformed by the contemplation that's occurred but I the the idea that in private one might treat oneself as a friend and engage in a kind of socratic dialogue with oneself through language I found really quite really quite compelling. I also remember doing the research for that and thinking I was very surprised to learn that Anne Frank had made that decision before they went into hiding. So here she was a quite popular young girl at school with lots of friends in her day-to-day life and yet she still needed that perfect companion or that kindred spirit in a way, uh, she puts it in a, in a specific phrase, but that she still felt that she was lacking and she needed to fill that void somehow with, with her diary writing. By, by the way, that model, I think, helps answer the question in a way that I've never answered it for myself before of, of human liberty. And that is that we are, we are not ourselves a single thing. Uh, we may be ultimately so. We may have ultimate integrity, but approximately we might have more than oneself. That in a sense, freedom, what we're talking about as agency, would require oneself to persuade oneself or to represent oneself. I think that you, your piece opens up the possibility that representation and reflection are enough, that there need not be persuasion per se, but that there can be instead representation. And in that sense, it's we, we may actually already be talking about poetics as well as as uh, as rhetoric as students of literature <laughs> that we that we are that we are exactly there's another question then again I'm, I'm trying to frame questions so that we can think about this practically for listeners who want to I mean, we're talking about personal writing keeping a journal keeping a diary 
I think it might be useful to hear your thoughts on more public forms of writing in this context. And, and, then I, and then I do have another question to put to you for the practical application of this. But why don't you go ahead and, and, and tell us a little bit about public spheres of writing that we can involve ourselves in. Yeah, I'd love to, love to. So drawing, drawing not this time on Plato, but instead on Aristotle, I've been fascinated by, by the possibility that the, three, that the three genres that he talks about, political and legal and ceremonial, might actually encompass a good number of our speech acts day to day. And the reason that I've been thinking about this is I've been thinking, well, during, during political or deliberative rhetoric, we, we do, we deliberate. We try to persuade or dissuade either ourselves or others with respect to the goods we hope to achieve. In legal, we hope to prosecute or defend with respect to the, to the just. And in ceremonial rhetoric, we praise and blame with respect to the beautiful or the noble. I ask a question of students when I'm, when I'm uh, teaching, and I've learned a lot from their responses, and I'll just ask, well, do you, do you think that, that this encompasses all speech acts? And of course, they immediately say no. You know, we start to talk about it, and what we realize is it's quite encompassing that to seek the good or the just or the beautiful and noble through language Maybe what we're doing, if not all the time, most of the time. And so I've started thinking about social media and our exchanges via the Internet. And there's more writing being done now by more people than ever historically. I have no numbers to support that, uh, um, but I'm, I'm positive that it's the that it is the case. I mean, I myself am writing and receiving email all day. We, we all are. I text back and forth probably with good 20 to 25 people, even not counting text, uh, text chains. There's a new form of writing being born, it seems to me. The email is not quite as formal as the, as the letter, and yet it is a form of epistolary rhetoric. Text is even less formal. It took me a while, for example, as an, as an old dog learning a new trick to realize that I needed to be very careful with periods in texts because they presume a kind of finality that text culture <laughs> frowns upon. And even more than that, it took me probably, I'm still having trouble with, uh, with the exclamation mark because, because I grew up being told never use the exclamation or very, very seldom. And uh, you know, we, I think we all associated it with the kind of writing where eyes were dotted with hearts. And now uh, I find myself uh, employing, it, employing it all of the time. But the, the reason I bring up both of those forms, uh, email and text, is because I actually do think that straightforward principles of the art of rhetoric, they can improve this art of soul leading that we're engaged in through these particular forms of language, these particular medium. And of course, it goes without saying that we live in a volatile and socially uh, disrupted moment in which many of us are having trouble uh, speaking or writing to and with one another. And I do wonder whether, then there are many causes to that. I would not want to be reductive, but I think one of the causes of that is that we've lost the traditional art of rhetoric that helps us adjudicate those. And we tend to think, think that they don't pertain. And the reason we think they don't pertain is because these new forms 
obviously didn't exist in the ancient in the ancient world. And so it does seem to me incumbent upon upon those of us who are fortunate enough to teach people, especially young people, arts of language, uh, to try to equip them with the art of rhetoric such that their the particular forms that they're employing can be can be helpful for the flourishing life. And so I wonder if the principles don't still pertain, though the particular forms have changed and whether the study of the art might not improve, not simply contemporary discourse in a broad way, but improve people's individual lives. A lot of people are going amiss (laughs) in emails. A lot of people are going amiss in texts. And it often often actually brings about great, great unhappiness in a variety of, of ways. I think we all probably have our, our own personal stories about such. And it just seems to me that the art, the art could, could assist us. Yeah, it's funny listening to you talk. There's this thinking about this context and the potential for miscommunication, uh, thinking about the gift of representation that we can acquire through practicing the art of rhetoric. You know, there's a, there is a darkness, I think, when you don't know how to employ language and it affects your thoughts, it affects your relationships, it affects your communication. And there's this lovely, lovely quotation. I'm going to quote George Eliot because I just don't think I can have a conversation without quoting her at least once. When she was with her partner, George Henry Lewis, who is a scientist, a biologist, and they were at a seaside town in England, and they were preparing his, his work for a, his Seaside Studies book. So they were spending their days looking in tide pools and walking through country lanes and doing a lot of specific naming of what they came across as Lewis was cataloging information. And so in her journal at one point during that, George Eliot wrote, she said, I never before longed so much to know the precise names of things. And she says the desire is part of this tendency that is now constantly growing in me to escape what is vague and inaccurate into the daylight of distinct, vivid ideas. And that image of moving from one to escape, you know, she's talking about escaping this idea of liberty, I think really fits with that. And just this image of darkness to daylight that she's metaphorically alluding to. There's just so much to to take away from rhetoric. I think that we we don't quite realize just how, how useful and important it is for our emotional, spiritual, and not just academic selves. So this kind of brings me to the question that I was alluding to earlier with where do we start? And I've, I've gleaned some of the resources that I like to use, and I've picked two that I think represent very different approaches. Neither of them deal specifically with rhetoric, but with just the act of writing itself. So the first one is a book by Natalie Goldberg, who's a writer who writes a lot about the practice of writing in terms of meditation practices. So she wrote a book in the 1980s called Writing Down the Bones, Freeing the Writer Within. And uh, she focuses a lot on originality and the fact that we just need to sit and we just need to write. I think she focuses mainly on personal writing, but that can develop into something more. And she advises that we write about the objects around us, our everyday lives, our imagined lives, let the thoughts that we have come out onto the page, uh, stream through us, let the metaphors organically appear, and that we don't censor or second-guess ourselves. So she's emphasizing receptivity, practice, courage, openness, 
So it's a very creative, in a way, alluring approach to writing, I think. The other approach, though, is a lot more traditional, and it focuses on imitation. And I found this book that I just started reading. I really enjoy it. It's called The Writer's Workshop, Imitating Your Way to Better Writing by Gregory Roper, who's also, I think, at the University of Dallas. And you're mentioned in the acknowledgments, so I knew you would, you would maybe be familiar <laughs> with this book. He's, um, a, he's a colleague of mine here. So this book, it's you know based on the idea that we need to apprentice ourselves to writing masters. So we need to pick up Shakespeare, Milton, Jane Austen, Henry James, George Eliot, and we need to read, imitate, revise, read, imitate, revise, and gradually store up within ourselves you know, deposits of, of vocabulary and syntax. And then when we do sit down to write our original thoughts and ideas, these will come to our aid. I'm just thinking that it represents this, you know, do we write through imitation? Do we write creatively and originally? Do we do both? Do we alternate? And where does rhetoric fit in with these two practices? And I would just like to hear your thoughts, I think, on those two approaches. Oh, very, very rich, very rich terrain. Just before answering or responding to those two visions of writing, I wanted to back up and respond to the, the Eliot quote, which I thought was just, mag- just magnificent, because I do, I do think that it's easy to forget just how extraordinary it is that human beings have the capacity to name and to name all of the elements of the cosmos from the from the largest to the to the smallest and in the biblical tradition of course this is the gift to Adam and Eve that they can name And so I think the first thing we need to do is to acquire, whether we recover it or not, I don't know, but to acquire a love, a love of words, of language itself for naming or being able to name the substances and the attributes that we're trying to understand and and express. And the second part of what I really do think of as the miracle of of language, even having read in linguistics and understanding that this may very well be a natural faculty that we have. Nonetheless, I think of predication itself, not just naming, but predicating as an extraordinary attribute of the human to be able to put together a subject and a verb which have never been brought together before in order to to understand oneself and another and to move both toward, you know, a deliberative good or a, a, a judicial form of justice or a ceremonial form of beauty. And I think these are just remarkable attributes of us as human beings. I'm actually preparing to teach a class in the fall in the art of the sentence. And a number of students uh, signed up for the class, but did so skeptically. I already know how to write a sentence. And what I plan on doing is, is actually trying to introduce them or reintroduce them to the wonder of language itself, specifically in this case, our own English language, and the remarkable number of things that we can do with it. All, at least apparently infinite to a finite being like myself, when you think about the variety of styles available to us in the tradition, really quite remarkable. 
So I did just want to, to riff on the miracle of language because I can't resist doing so. That topic itself raises this topic about creation v. imitation. I think both forms are required. So to answer your question, I think we, we absolutely need both. And I do think, generally speaking, those of us who teach do better uh, generally with imitation because one of the things we want to do is introduce students to the forms that the writing can, 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 take, can take place in. We, we rely much too heavily, of course, on the, on the essay, but whatever the form, whether you're you know, teaching students or encouraging them to keep a journal or to write a scene or a short story, to write a non-academic essay or a dialogue or, or a poem, that all of these have formal properties that I just think teachers naturally gravitate toward. It gives you something to talk about at the board, but it also empowers the students because they can see something that has been done they can see the contours of it, and then they can they can imitate. Tracing is easier than drawing, but most artists have practiced have practiced both in the development of their art itself. I will tell you that as a as a traditionalist, as a student of Shakespeare, uh, whose creativity, at least in my interpretation, was enabled by imitation. I tend to be, as is Professor Roper, a big fan of imitation. Indeed. Part of my class on the sentence will involve imitating different styles. And so, you know, what would it be like to write a sentence like Henry James? What would it be like to write a, a sentence like Virginia Woolf? What if you tried to translate a, a Woolf sentence into a James style and that sort of thing? But the whole idea is that from that imitation, however, one can begin to invent and create one's own style. And this is why I, I think it's very important not to neglect, neglect the other model, the model of meditation. Contemplation in your, in your reading or paying attention in the earlier description that you, that you used. And it seems to me that if one is trained, if you will, and I don't mean just in school. I, mean, I think if one pays attention to the language that one is reading, whether it be a novel one is reading or an essay in The New Yorker, an email from a, from a friend or a colleague or a family member who's, who's a good writer. I have a brother-in-law who's particularly good at texting, and I have started to pay attention to his texts quite, quite carefully, and even at, uh, at times to imitate him. He has a marvelous way of, of uh, bringing out humor in a very short, in a very short form, and I've been, I've been tracking it a little bit and having a go at it myself. But I do think that this paying attention, imitating, and then allowing oneself to pay attention without being quite so conscious of the forms you've imitated, I think that's an extremely, extremely important activity. I tend to think of those as, as counterparts to one another. We need to imitate and we need to innovate. And they tend to fructify one another if they're done not necessarily at the same time, but if they're done together. Yeah, and I think this hits on a really important aspect to anyone who wants to write and, and better themselves and better their writing is that relationship between writing and reading. You know, that you really can't have one without the other. And you can't really have reading without writing in some respect either. Even if the words don't actually end up on a page somewhere or a screen reading does something to the way that you think and and improves it, I think. Of course, it depends on what you're reading, but 
if we're talking about literature, then I think it, it definitely makes a difference. So this, I did want to touch on reading. I think we are, we, we are coming up against it and discussing it, but it would be remiss to talk about writing without referring to reading directly, I think. And so, I mean, I, I think it's important to open up the activities of reading and writing for non-academics and in non-academic spaces. I think there's a lot of fruitful activity for self and others in that. But also, it, we can't dilute or weaken these pursuits either. It's not very helpful to tell someone that reading is easy or writing is easy because they are crafts and they do require skill and they do require practice. And they are lifelong pursuits, you know, I mean, there's a reason for that. If you have some more to say, I think, on the interconnection between those two skills. And again, thinking about this as a life skill, writing as a life skill. I think now we can talk about reading as a life skill and just touching on the way these improve us. I'll just mention for your class, you're, you might already be familiar with this, but, you know, I'm, I'm very intrigued by your, by your class on writing a sentence. There's a, a great book, First You Write a Sentence by Joe Moran. That's another book that I've come across and have found really useful for my writing. And every single sentence in the book itself, you know that, you know, he knows that his readers will be analyzing each sentence because he's writing a book on how to write a sentence. And he never bends under that pressure. You know, each sentence is very well constructed and brings something to the content, I think, the way that each one is formed. And then there's some really wonderful insights about etymologies and the way that we employ certain certain words in, in that book. But I digress. What would you suggest or, or add to this interconnection between reading and writing as life skills? Yeah, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful question. The first thing that I would say is that if if we're all doing more writing than has ever been done in the history of the world, I think we're also doing more reading. Most of us are online a good deal, a good deal of our day. And we're reading a great deal. The, the productivity of the internet, the need for quote-unquote content, means that we are surrounded by, by language, some of which is superb and some of which isn't. And so the first thing that I would say is that one life skill is to take a break from the normal reading that we do and to attend to more carefully written uh, uh, books. And so here, I'm afraid I would, <laughs> at this point, you know, our listeners are thinking, a couple of English teachers, here we go. At this point, I would say, well, I, I really do think it's a matter of reading well-written books, especially, I must say, in one's, in one's own language. Uh, English is just a remarkable, remarkable language, and we're so fortunate to have so much beautiful English prose. And so, you know, my recommendation would be to read that every time one's attention is attracted to a text that's that's discussed, for example, during our, our show, if, if one hasn't read Anne Frank, do so, for example, and, and so on and so forth. And so the first thing I would say would be to to take a break from the internet and read a book. And the second thing I would say is that while one is doing so, to, to on occasion, during that contemplative activity of reading and enjoying what you're reading, note a sentence or two. There is a tradition of keeping a journal of favorite quotations, copybook. And 
I would recommend it myself. I plan on recommending it to my to my students, but I'd recommend it to anybody. Simply copying out a very finely written sentence is itself, I think, a wonderful activity. And then my third recommendation would be to pay attention when one's writing one's own sentences, including in forms that encourage speed. Most of us I know have such vivid experiences of being hurried to both read and to write. I myself feel that I will offend someone if I don't respond to their email in, in quote-unquote real time. That's even more the case with texting. And, and so I've had to try to train myself to slow down a little bit and remember that this is, you know, this is going to be composed of sentences that have to be read by a human being <laughs> to remind myself of the manners, if you will, of speaking and writing to others. And so the the third aspect of that is that as one is moving from reading to copying and copying to writing, that one slow down, pay attention. I think attention is a is a significant topic for our age. I think I'll speak for myself. I'm having trouble paying attention these days. There's too much, it comes at me too quickly and I'm responsible for too many things. And so I'm having to find ways to, to govern that, to try to regain my attention and my ability to give myself the mental space that I think you, you describe so well, again, in your, in your essay, Conversing with Oneself, to give myself that space to write sentences for the, the person receiving the email or the text such that it improves our lives as opposed to to diminishing. And so keeping the beautiful, the good, the just in view as we write and compose our sentences. Especially in relationship to the language itself that we are using and which again is our singular attribute. It is arguably the very thing that makes us that makes us human. And I think if I had any any final thing to say, it would be that we should think of both reading and writing, but also listening and speaking as the activities that help us become distinctly and more richly human. Well, Scott, thank you so much for, for joining us here and for talking to Renovatio's listeners. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Likewise, a delight. I feel quite fortunate being able to participate in this. And thank you so much for your essay and for your questions. Thank you for your kind words. That's, I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm.